We're going to start this morning in Hebrews 1, and I'm, I'm going to read Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, and only Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, for the last time today. So look with me there. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let me pray. Father, we ask as we consider this one glorious sentence and really the conclusion of this sentence that goes on for four verses as your son is exalted as the, the revelation of God as the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature through whom you created the world and who upholds the universe by the word of his power, as we consider him who is the heir of all things, who has become greater than angels, as much so as his name is superior to theirs, the name he has inherited is. Father, we pray that as we reflect upon who he is, that we would understand by the working of your spirit, we would understand what it is that's being communicated to your church. What has been superintended by your spirit for the Hebrew Christians to whom this was written and for your church in all ages. And we ask that we would exalt your son properly. Give us understanding. Give us faith. Help us to listen to him. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. For the last several weeks we have been looking at This first sentence of Hebrews 1, this sentence trails on for four verses. And as we've been looking at this sentence in Hebrews 1, we have been looking at the comparison being made between the Son, who is the revelation of God, the Word of God Himself, and the Old Testament prophets who delivered the Word of God, through whom God delivered His Word in the Old Testament. We've been looking at that comparison Now this morning, I want to conclude this sentence really by noting how our author now introduces a second comparison. The beginning of the the verse, if you look there, verse 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, he's referring to the whole of the Old Testament witness, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, 
He's making a comparison between the prophets and the son. And he wants you to be clear that the son is greater than the prophets. He spoke through the prophets, but now he's spoken through his son. And yet at the end of the sentence, as he goes on to tell you all about the son, he wants to tell you who the son is and why he's greater than the prophets. He, the prophets are servants. The son is the heir of all things. The prophets are creatures. The son is the one through whom he created the world. The prophets have in some way mediated God's revelation to you. The Son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The prophets have told you about God who cares for you. The Son is the God who cares for you and is upholding you by the word of his power and bringing you to your proper end. The prophets gave you types and shadows of the sacrifice for your sins, pointing forward to the one who would be the sacrifice for your sins. The Son is himself the sacrifice for your sins, the great high priest. The prophets tell you about priests and kings. The Son is the priest king who sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. See what he's saying? He's comparing the prophets to the Son. And then he ends this sentence in an interesting way. Notice how he does verse 4. Having become, the son, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So he changes the comparison from the prophets to the angels. The prophets delivered the word of God and Moses is the great Old Testament prophetic figure who mediated the law to the people. In other words, Moses delivered the law of God, the Mosaic Covenant, to the people. Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And Jesus, the Son, is greater than Moses. He's greater than all the prophets. So then here's the question, why bring up the angels? It's an interesting way to conclude the sentence. Why bring them up? It probably seems foreign to us because we don't talk about angels much. We probably don't talk about angels that much for a couple of reasons. One, um, we tend to have naturalistic tendencies, if you will. In other words, we do not tend to think about the fact that the Lord has angels whom we cannot see who are carrying out his will. We just don't tend to think about that. We can't see them. And we have a tendency now toward a kind of naturalistic materialism where we only tend to consider, think about, believe in the things we can see, touch, taste, feel, etc. The angels, we can't see them. We can't touch them. We can't taste them. That'd be weird anyway. You know, so, so we don't think about them much. Or second, here's the other reason, is that We've seen angels treated in all variety of odd and unbiblical ways. They're, they're made into these little ugly baby statues, right? You guys seen those? Like, there are no angel babies. They don't give birth. You understand that? Okay? We treat them mythologically in, in all sorts of odd ways. So the whole thing could just seem odd. But the Bible does not share, I want you to hear this, the Bible does not share our shyness about angels. 
In fact, the New Testament church, the church to whom the author of Hebrews is writing, did not share our reluctance to think often about angels. They thought often about them. At the, at the times, the church actually went way overboard in their belief about angels. New Testament church went so far overboard in their belief about angels that Paul in Colossians 2 and verse 19 has to rebuke the church for the worship of angels. The whole structure of um, the author to Hebrews shifts at verse 4 to comparing Jesus to angels. But look how interested he is in the topic of angels. Look at verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say? Look at verse 7. Of the angels, he says, compared to verse 8, but of the Son, he says. Look at verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said? Drop down to chapter 2 and verse 5. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. Look at verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. In other words, there is a comparison being made here in chapter 1 from verse 4 all the way through chapter 2 between the Son and the angels. So now, why? Why compare the Son with the angels? Why conclude this glorious sentence about the Son with a comparison to the angels and then carry that comparison on an explanation and application for nearly two chapters? Who are the angels? What are angels? What do they do? Biblically, angels are holy servants of the Lord. That's what they are. They are spiritual creatures of God. You are both a spiritual and physical creature of God. You, you are both body and soul. Angels are spiritual creatures of God. They are messengers and servants of the Lord. They are messengers and servants of the Lord who minister to the Lord's people. Look at verse 14 of chapter 1. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. They, are they not all, is a reference to verse 13, and to which of the angels has he said, ever said. In other words, the angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. In other words, they're sent out to serve us. We see angels come to folks throughout the Old Testament and New Testament to minister to them. We see angels come to Abraham to Lot, and I'm just going to name a few. I'm going to skip through. To Jacob, to Moses, to Balaam, to Gideon, to David, to Elijah, to Daniel, to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. I just skipped to your New Testament. To Joseph, the husband of Mary. To Mary, the mother of Jesus. To Jesus himself to the 12 apostles, to Philip the evangelist, one of the seven, to Cornelius, the God-fearing Gentile in Acts 10, just to name a few. 
The angels are God's holy messengers. They are his holy servants. It was so normal in the New Testament church to consider angels messengers of God, those who delivered the word of God, that Paul can say to the church at Galatia that even if an angel from heaven should preach to you a different gospel, do not listen to him. He can say that because they're used to hearing that angels preach messages. They preach them through prophetic mediators, if you will, but they deliver them nonetheless. Further, we see the angels protecting God's people in the Old Testament and the New, protecting them. You can think of David. We see the angels destroying God's enemies. You can think of much in the Exodus scene. We can see the angels caring for the needs of the Son of God during his wilderness temptation. We can see the angels delivering God's word to his people. We can even see the angels carrying those who have died to the Lord's presence. If you think of the story, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. When God's angels did not veil their glory and power, when they did not veil their glory and power, those who caught a glimpse of those angels dropped to their faces in fear. These creatures of God that we call angels are glorious, powerful, and holy. As creatures, they far exceed. I want you to hear this. As creatures, they far exceed us in glory and power and holiness. Look at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 7. Speaking of the Son, chapter 2 and verse 7, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. Look at verse 9 of chapter 2. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. How was he made lower than the angels? He became a man. So while we, we might wonder why Hebrews spends nearly two chapters comparing the sun to angels, that would not be a question for the original audience. Wouldn't be a question for them. Of course you would. God delivered his word to his prophets by angels. So, you're saying the son's greater not only than the prophets, but he's greater than the angels? delivered that? But here's the question I want to ask. What is the specific comparison being made in Hebrews 1? What is the specific comparison being made between the Son and the angels here in Hebrews 1? Why does he first say that the Son is greater than the Old Testament prophets and now say that the Son is greater than the angels? Now, I've given you a a taste of that because the Old Testament prophets often received their revelation through the mediation of angels, including the greatest of the prophets, Moses. The law was mediated through the angels at Mount Sinai to Moses. You can see that from the Sermon of Stephen 
in Acts 7, 37 through 38. You can see that through Paul in Galatians 3 and verse 19. You can see that in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 2. Look there. Hebrews 2, verse 2. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, what message declared by angels? He's talking there of the message of the Mosaic Covenant. The one that Moses received was delivered by angels. So angels mediated the law to Moses. Thus the angels are a big deal. They are the messengers of God's word. So verse 4 is giving us a startling assertion about Jesus. What's it saying about Jesus? After he made purification for sins, he himself made purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now listen to the assertion. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Jesus Christ has become much greater, much better, far superior to angels, and the name he has inherited is far more excellent than theirs. Now, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5 through 14 is going to go on to provide the evidence for that assertion in verse 4. Verse 4 makes the assertion. Here's the assertion. You ready? The assertion. Jesus has become much greater than the angels. As much superior to the angels as the name he's inherited is superior to theirs. That's the assertion. The evidence, chapter 1, verse 5 through 14. And then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, he's going to provide the application for that assertion. Now, there's no way in the world I'm getting to all that today. You know better. But, but we'll move through that over the coming weeks. Today, I want to make sure that we understand the assertion. What this assertion is. And to understand this assertion, I want you to look with me closely at Hebrews 1.4. Speaking of the Son, whom he addresses in verse 2 and then gives us all of these descriptors of. In verse 4, notice this last descriptor of the Son. Having become, notice that word become, I want to point that out in the assertion. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited. Note that word inherited. The name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. What does that mean? Well, it seems contextually that Jesus is inheriting a name. What name? Well, if you look in verse 2, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, and then you go down to verse 5, for which, to which the angels did God ever say, you are my Son, today I have begotten you, or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Or if you go down to verse 8, but of the Son he says, etc., etc., the name that he seems to be referring to that Jesus is inheriting is the name Son of God. He's inheriting that name. So it seems that he is at some point, listen to what I'm saying, he has at some point, Jesus Christ has at some point inherited the name Son of God. Further, it seems he has at some point become, become, hear that word, become superior to the angels of God. But how? Because I hope you're noticing a problem right away. Okay? I mean, I'm hoping you're tempted. You're almost feeling tempted to want to drag me out of the pulpit and give me a beating in the parking lot right now. 
I hope you're feeling that welling up in you. Okay? Which would be far better than letting me stand up here and preach heresy, incidentally. Far better for me and for the church. It seems at some point he's become superior to the angels of God. But how does the Son, the eternal Son of God, inherit a name superior to the angels? Doesn't that directly imply that at some point his name was inferior to theirs? How does the eternal Son of God become superior to the angels? Listen, God can't become anything. He is pure being, pure act. He is not becoming. There's no becoming in God. You and I become something, right? I became a husband. I became a father. I was born, I became a baby. I became a man. I became a heavier set man. <laughs> right? You know how that goes, right? Okay? I became things. We become things. God becomes nothing. But doesn't this text just say that the son becomes something? Doesn't it directly imply that at some point he was inferior to the angels? So isn't the book of Hebrews giving us direct evidence, direct evidence that Jesus was actually a creature? Even a creature lower than the angels. That's all he was. And at some point, he was adopted as the son. I mean, he is becoming superior and inheriting a name. That sounds like in some way, Jesus went from what he once was not to what he is now. In other words, perhaps my assertion that he is eternally the son of God is being shown here to be a false assertion. Maybe I'm just reading that into the text presumptively because I want it to be so, because as the guys who knock at your door have told you, the church was corrupted at the council of Nicaea, and the rest of us have wrongly followed their error until a man received golden tablets in a forest somewhere in the upper northwest United States, or northeast United States that restored the gospel to, to us, right, after his people came on a boat during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar in 7th century B.C. Anyway, you understand, over to the Americas, right? Isn't that what's happening? I mean, what right from the text itself do I have to argue that Jesus is the eternal Son of God? Well, over the next few weeks, I will not only continue to make this assertion, but demonstrate it as so. I'm not going to demonstrate it all today. But today I want to begin the argument. Now, now as sort of an aside, if I do not exalt Jesus as the eternal Son of God, then I am one of those whom Paul declares anathema, eternally condemned. And you ought to drag me out of the pulpit, and you ought to stop my mouth from uttering any further blasphemy. Now, I know we're rightly opposed to carrying our opposition to heresy to the extent of burning false teachers at the stake. I know we're rightly opposed to that, 
That was once practiced. But we have become so soft with regard to the truth. We don't even have truth. We have my truth and your truth now. We become so soft that we can, we can hardly bear an uncomfortable or sharp disagreement. If you point out error, then you are mean and angry and arrogant. We've swung the pendulum too far in the other direction. That's what I want you to understand. Too far. In our desire to love all image bearers of God, and we ought to love all image bearers of God, we ought to show kindness to all image bearers of God. In our desire to love and show kindness to all image bearers of God, even those who preach false doctrine, we have often reached the point of dishonoring and despising the name of the Lord whose image they bear. Friends, I I pray we have the jealousy for the name of our Lord that he deserves. And it is that jealousy for the name of Jesus that causes me to take the time to dwell in a text so long and to meditate upon who he is and what he has done. With that said, here's what I want to provide you with. First, I want to provide you with an assertion of what I think this text is saying. And then second, I want to define that assertion in two parts, right? So first, I want to provide you with an assertion of what I think it's saying. And second, I want to define it in two parts. Here are the two parts. The son's humility and the son's exaltation, or his humiliation and his exaltation. So first, my assertion. Jesus, here's the assertion. Jesus is the eternal son of God who became man to exercise the office of mediator. To mediate between God and man. Here's what I'm saying. Jesus is the eternal Son of God to whom the name Son of God naturally belongs. It naturally belongs to him. And he is naturally superior to the angels. Jesus is also the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, who became flesh and dwelt among us. He is the eternal Son of God who humbled himself and took on the form of a servant, the form of man, to carry out the work of the mediator or the Christ. We call this the incarnation. The incarnation of the Son of God. Incarnate. In other words, keep hitting my thing here. Incarnate, he becomes flesh. He becomes man. Every Christmas, um, which I can't wait for it to come, right? I've already started listening to Christmas music. I know, I love Christmas. But every Christmas, and frankly, every day, every day, we as Christians celebrate the incarnation. We celebrate the divine mystery that the eternal Son became man and dwelt among us. He was thus one person in two natures. One person, two natures, God and man united in one person, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, I want you to listen to how the church has historically confessed this. Um, I, I want to point to the Creed of Chalcedon from AD 451. Can you put that up? Is that up already? Here, listen, I put it up so you can read along with me because it says a lot. 
I'm not going to define it all for you today, but I just want you to hear the church says this. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable or, or rational soul and body, consubstantial or of the same essence with the Father according to the Godhead and consubstantial or of the same essence with us according to the manhood. In all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father. In other words, he's the eternally begotten Son of the Father according to the Godhead. And in these latter days or these last days for us, he was begotten for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten to be acknowledged in two natures. And those natures, listen, inconfusably, confusedly, sorry, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature, God and man, being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons. In other words, he isn't a schizophrenic or dual personality, but one and the same son and only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. Did we confess that as a church? Now I'm saying this text is speaking of the eternal Son of God as the incarnate Christ. As the incarnate Son He is, I want you to hear this, this is important. As the incarnate son, he is in the discharge of his office as mediator declared to be the son of God. He always is the son of God. He is eternally the son of God. God has for eternity said of him, this is my son. Additionally, In the discharge of his office as mediator, the incarnate son is declared to be the son of God. In the discharge of his work as the mediator, as the Christ, he becomes greater than the angels and inherits the name above all names. So let me define that assertion in two parts. But as a reminder, I'm saying that Jesus is the incarnate son of God. And I'm saying that though he is the eternal son of God, And thus naturally superior to angels. And naturally has a name superior to theirs. Though that is true. It is also true that as the incarnate son of God. The God man. The mediator. He inherits this name son. And becomes superior to angels. As the incarnate son. By the discharge of his office. As mediator. By the way. We'll see this in the coming weeks, but you see that at the incarnation. He is called the Son of God. You see that at his baptism. 
This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. You see that at his transfiguration. This is my beloved son. You see that upon his resurrection. He's declared to be the son of God in power. In other words, throughout the entirety of his life, we're being told he is the son of God. But it's eternally so. I want to show you that in two parts. The humility of the incarnate son and the exaltation of the incarnate son. So let's start with the humility of the incarnate son. I want you to note the order of the argument that starts in verse 2. Look at verse 2 of Hebrews 1. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Now, I dealt with that in a sermon, so I'm not going to deal with it again. But he's rightly the heir of all things because he is the one, next phrase, through whom he also created the world. Now look what it says next. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He is himself very God of very God. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is sustaining all things and carrying all things to their proper end. And he, that is the Son himself, made purification for sins. And after he made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And after the completion of the Son's priestly work of atonement, he was enthroned as the king. And as such, as such, as this enthroned priest king, he has become as much superior to angels as the name he's inherited is more excellent than theirs. Notice how this text speaks of him as both God and man. He is the creator, the sustainer, the radiance of God's glory, and he is and he is the heir, the one who atoned for our sins, the one who sat down at the right hand, the Father's right hand, and the one who inherits a great name, becomes superior to the angels. God, creator, sustainer, very God of very God, the radiance of his glory. Man, the heir of all things, the one who atoned for our sins, the one who sat down at the right hand of the Father and who inherits a great name. In other words, what he's getting at is in this one person, you see what is properly ascribed to him according to each nature. But it's in one person. So it's ascribed to the whole person. In other words, this text is about the God-man. It's about the incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was full of glory in himself. He is the radiance of God's glory, and he humbled himself and took on humanity. So look again at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. But we see him, speaking of the Son, Jesus, we see him who, notice this, for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The Son was, for a little while, made lower than angels. He was made lower by becoming a man and suffering to the point of death. This is what John is getting at in his prologue in John 1. John 1, 1, what does it say? In the beginning, in the beginning what? Was the Word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. Verse 14, and the word became flesh 
and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only Son, or only begotten Son of the Father. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, keep your hand in Hebrews 1 and look at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And if you will, look down to verse 5. talking about our need as a church for humility, to consider others more important than ourselves, but he then makes application and gives us some Christology here, some doctrine of Christ. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, who is he speaking of? Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, another way we could translate it, he's, he's by very nature God, who though he was in the form of God, did not Count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant or the nature of man, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You hear that? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. He is the one who is God, who humbled himself. By becoming the servant. He humbled himself by the addition of humanity. He doesn't humble himself by subtraction. The Son of God loses nothing of his essential nature. Do you hear that? God becomes nothing. He doesn't become more. He doesn't become less. He is. But he adds to himself, thus humbling himself, a human nature. You say, has there been any change in God? No. The Son of God has united himself to a human nature without any change in God. He's added himself a human nature and thus become humbled. He was humbled by becoming the mediator between God and man. And listen, discharging the duties of that office which carried him to the cross. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's how he humbled himself. That's how he became lower than the angels, as the God-man, Jesus Christ. Not as the eternal Son of God. He's never been lower than anything. But as the God-man, Jesus Christ. But he's also exalted in the carrying out of the duties of of the mediator. The Son was not only humbled in becoming man, but he was also exalted in becoming man to carry out the duties of the mediator. Look, let's look at the exaltation of the Son. Look at verse 9 in Hebrews 2, or sorry, Philippians 2. Verse 9 in Philippians 2. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Now listen, it isn't that the eternal Son of God didn't always have that name. It's that it was veiled, if you will. The glory of the Son was humbled in the form of a man who became obedient even to the point of death on a cross. And now in that cross and resurrection, if you will, he's vindicated to be who he always has been, the Son of God. 
so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you hear that? Yes, the incarnate Son of God was humbled, but upon the discharge of his mediatorial office, he was also exalted. Now look at Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, because that's the structure of his argument. If you look at verse 3, right in the middle, after making purification for sins, that's speaking of his humility, even to the point of death, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, speaking of his exaltation as king. Now look, that forms an inclusio around this whole chapter. An inclusio says like bookends. Tells you what's in between. Verse 3, look what it says. At the very end of verse 3, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Now look at verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? He's bracketing this section with the enthronement psalm, Psalm 110. And he's wanting you to understand. He's wanting you to understand. Our author is telling us that the eternal Son of God humbled himself by becoming the incarnate Son, carrying out the duties of that office, and thus was exalted as the mediator. He was vindicated. He was shown to be what he is, much greater than the angels, and he inherited a name as the mediator, much superior to theirs. That's similar to what Paul says in Romans 1. In Romans 1, Paul says, he, he, he begins his address with his name, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. And he tells you what he's called to be, called to be an apostle. And he tells you what his apostleship is toward, set apart for the gospel of God. And then he starts to define that gospel with the Old Testament, which he promised beforehand by his prophets in his holy scriptures. And then he tells you what he promised about the gospel of God. It's concerning his son, Then he tells you about the son who was descended from David according to the flesh. And who was what? Declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So Jesus Christ, our Lord, the Son of God, is superior to angels, and his name is superior to theirs. Why tell us that? What's the application of all this? Look at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1. We'll come back to that. But look, look at this now. Therefore, here's your application. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Remember, they spoke to our, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. He delivered the message to Moses, the prophet, by angels, but in these last days, he delivered the message by the son. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable... And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. That's the Lord Jesus. 
And it was attested to us by those who heard, that's the apostles, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Listen, here's the application. If God's people listen to God's servants, the angels and the prophets, how much more should they listen to God's Son? If we listen to what was said about him in the Old Testament through the prophets, if we listen to what was said about him delivered by angels, how much more should we listen to his son? If you could be damned because you ignored God's testimony concerning himself that was delivered by prophets and angels, how much more are you going to be damned if you neglect to listen to his son. If listening to that revelation in the Old Testament delivered by angels and prophets could point you to salvation in Christ by types and shadows and bring you to salvation in his name, how much more can the testimony of the son himself save you? See, we listen to his word, we believe him, we trust him, we worship him. Salvation is found in him alone. It's through him alone that we come to the Father. It is his, his word alone that is the principle which governs our worship. It is because of him that we can be patient in and rejoice in affliction, for we know that he, the Son himself, is our treasure and our joy, our great reward. And there can be none greater than him. It is in his humiliation and his exaltation, his life and death and resurrection, that we have life. So we trust him and we worship him. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased with men as man to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful for your Son and his revelation to us, the fact that he has revealed you to us and saved us brought us to you through his life and death and resurrection. The fact that he is at your right hand even now ever interceding for us and his spirit has given us life, has given us ears to hear and eyes to see, hearts to believe, and has united us to your son through faith. We give thanks and pray that we would worship you. We pray that we would Never speak of the name of your Son in any way that dishonors him or degrades him. In any way that does not recognize that he has inherited a name greater than the angels. A name that eternally belongs to him. The name of the glorious Son of God. Our Lord our Savior, Jesus Christ.
pray that we'd trust him and exalt him in Jesus' name. Amen.